listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to another episode of Belaboured Podcast, episode 124. In this episode, we will be talking to Tressie McMillan Cottom on her new book about higher education and the influence of for profit schools on the industry. But first, the news. What if your cute new work outfit was so expensive it cost you your job? That's the dilemma now facing countless women across Europe who want to wear the hijab, the traditional Muslim female head covering, to work. The European Union Court of Justice has just ruled that private employers are permitted under EU law to forbid the wearing of the hijab at work as long as it is part of a blanket regulation that covers any religious, philosophical, or political symbol at work. What this means is that the EU civil rights regime has said has basically said that you can engage freely in anti-Muslim discrimination. In a case involving the multinational security forum G4S at their office based in Belgium, the court upheld a prohibition on the hijab, which had forced Samir Achiba, one of the staff workers, to basically either maintain her office job, which required no duties that conflicted with her religious practice, or to stop expressing her religion through her dress. In a parallel but contradictory ruling, the court opined that the France-based tech multinational Micropole could not dismiss a worker in response to a customer's complaint. So it's a mixed ruling. Nonetheless, it generally upholds the right for employers to have the final say on what kind of religious displays that you can um, wear at work. So basically, your boss can punish you for freely expressing your Muslim identity, but a customer cannot. Got it? Well, if you find that confusing, the ruling essentially forecloses women's opportunities to seek legal recourse against employers who abuse the policy to discriminate de facto against Muslim and other visible religious minorities at work. This is troubling because it's profoundly anti-democratic and ignores the disproportionate discriminatory impact that many Muslim women already feel in the workplace. They suffer massive degrees of discrimination and, of course, If the interest is in promoting liberal secular feminism, further economically disempowering a group of marginalized women who have traditionally faced oppression in their own communities, supposedly, obviously does nothing for the cause of feminism writ large. In the end, women of all backgrounds are set back when women of any background see their gender and any other aspect of their individual identity oppressed to uphold the existing power structure. Moreover, many Muslim women say that they actually are wearing the hijab out of choice. No one is forcing them to do it, and it is their own expression of their individuality. So the real problem here is with how we define secularism, not how we define religious symbolism. I spoke with Marco Perolini of Amnesty International, based in Europe, to discuss the ramifications of such a rule across Europe. So I think when the, it's quite problematic because actually this ruling gives quite a lot of leeway to uh, private employers. So it means that private employers can in fact adopt, adopt internal policies uh, that prohibit the wearing of any uh, religious or political or philosophical symbol. So it means that while in the past, uh, well, employer, in fact, many employers have done so, but, uh, you know, there was always a doubt about whether to what extent um, they could have introduced uh, such a ban uh, without facing uh, without facing basically uh, complaints and also civil civil lawsuits. Now it's quite. I mean, this ruling gives quite a lot of leeway because it means that 
private employers can in fact uh, adopt internal regulations prohibiting the wearing of any religious or, or philosophical or political symbol. Uh, so it's very problematic because also I think an important thing that perhaps we should think about is so uh, who are the groups that will be you know mostly disadvantaged by this sort of uh, this sort of, of, of rules so in fact we are talking about the court uh, so the ruling is about neutrality is about um, the possibility for employers to introduce general bans on on any symbol but in fact in most of these cases, I mean, we are in fact talking about about women and um, very often about Muslim women. All these cases are about uh, headscarves. And I think it's important to say, I mean, to, to think about the, the, the potential disproportionate impact that these neutral rules can have on specific groups, on specific religious minorities. Um, and when it comes to Muslim women, I think the problem is always uh, also the fact that already this specific group of, 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 of women are quite, you know, uh, face a specific disadvantage in the in the labor market so uh, if we look into you know studies in different European countries surveys etc it comes out that uh, Muslim women are already uh, you know they face discrimination more often than of course women from the mainstream population but also minority women um, who do not wear any religious symbols do you feel that this is reflective of a broader discriminatory attitude? It certainly reflects a broader issue. So uh, this is not a new issue in Europe. So there have been quite a lot of, of laws in different European countries imposing restrictions on, on um, the wearing of religious symbols. These restrictions have often had already a disproportionate impact on Muslim women. Um, so there are restrictions in many countries when it comes to education, um, for pupils, when it comes to public employment, so for state officials. And now, I mean, this is basically the very last area, so private employment. So in a way, this ruling and, and the conclusions of this ruling also adds up to you know, previous um, measures that have been adopted in other areas concerning uh, religious symbols. And I think, in fact, uh, it's also quite clear that although uh, you know, many people who, I mean, some of the people who support this, this sort of um, prohibitions, they argue that, uh, I mean, people at, at the end of the day, they can always, so that, that wearing a religious symbol is not really, uh, it doesn't, I mean, prohibiting the wearing of religious symbol does not mean prohibiting uh, uh, religious belief in itself but I think that this argument is also quite 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 dangerous so for people who wear uh, religious symbols sometimes I mean this is an in, really a, a very intrinsic part of their identity so um, they are now I mean we saw that in, in education for example in France there is a law since 2004 pupils are not allowed to wear uh, any religious or political symbols in schools so in that law for example put many pupils in front of a very hard choice so either 
I decided to remove my headscarf and go to uh, attend a public school or otherwise I, I am not going to attend a public school anymore and I, I either drop out or perhaps some of them, they starting attending uh, private schools. So in this case, it's going to be more or less, the, I mean, it could be a similar effect. So uh, women who wear religious symbols, they could to one extent, I mean, they could actually, they are confronted to a very hard choice. So they have to remove their headscarf, for example, if they want to, uh, if they want to increase their chances to find employment, which is, I mean, uh, already the case, or they have to, uh, for example, try to seek employment in specific areas, for example, in specific sectors, uh, which potentially can be, you know, uh, underpaid. So these are, for example, sectors where they are not in contact, in direct contact with clients. So, for example, call centers or these sort of, 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 of labor sectors where, uh, I mean, there are also issues about sometimes um, uh, you know, fair, fair, fair wage, etc. Um, so yes, I mean, just to answer your question, I think that this ruling reflects a general, um, you know, general trend in 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 Europe, a general trend where uh, women, and particularly Muslim women, and the way uh, Muslim women express their religious religious belief are very much under scrutiny. Um, and of course, these sort of rulings can you know give a lot of leeway to employers to pander to their prejudices. And that was Marco Perolini, a researcher at Amnesty International. We have talked on this podcast before many times about the expectations on professional and so-called amateur athletes to play for the love of it, as well as, of course, the inequities between men's and women's professional sports. Last week, the news broke that the United States women's national hockey team was going to strike from the world championships unless they got a fair contract from USA Hockey that actually allows them to, you know, be full-time professional athletes. I spoke with Monique Lamoureux-Mirando, two-time Olympic medalist with the team, about the organizing campaign, the inspiration that they drew from women's soccer players, and also from the women's strike, and more. So, yeah, I guess give me the rundown on um, what the conditions are and what um, led you guys to take this action. About 14, 15 months ago, we um, got contact information from Ballard and Spar Law Firm, and specifically John Langle, who used to represent the U.S. women's soccer team. We set up a couple conference calls with him uh, and talked to him as an entire group and decided that we wanted to move forward in addressing USA Hockey about being under contract under a four-year period. This would include being compensated, um, having more programming, having disability insurance, workers' comp, um, pregnancy benefits, the whole gamut of what a contract would include. We knew about a year ago that if significant progress wasn't being made, that this potentially could happen. Uh, And a year has came and went, and we are where we are today because essentially very little to no progress has been made, and we feel that USA Hockey is not listening to us and they're not hearing us, and we feel like this is finally getting their attention, but they still have not contacted our lawyers since yesterday. And so tell me about what the the process was like within the team of deciding that, you know, if you did not get a fair contract, that that you would refuse to play. 
Um, well, at this point, we haven't even received a contract from USA Hockey. We have given them a proposed draft of what we want, uh, but they yeah. have not. Um, we have done that twice now over the last 10 months, and both times right. they have not responded with um, any negotiating terms or even using the contracts to negotiate off of. But as a team, we've, we have a group of players that are going on their third Olympics, about eight of us. And right. there's a group going on their second Olympics as postgrads, and we feel that we are not treated treated equitably, and yeah. we feel that we should be under contract for over a four year period and not just six months of four years. Right. Uh, a lot of us work second and third jobs, and it's hard to balance all of the things that we do, and. Yeah. We're expected to show up to camp every six to eight weeks and be in tip-top shape. And you can't, you, we can't perform at a at an elite level by sitting around for six or eight weeks at a time and then just showing up at camp. There's, it's a full-time job being an elite athlete, and we want to be treated as such. And so you mentioned right at the top um, that this was the, the law firm that had worked with the women's soccer players. So I'd love to talk about the the context of that and and um, making this decision after they had taken a very public stand on equal pay and what this says for women's sports more generally. It's relatable to about 17 years ago when U.S. soccer originally set out to to, to be paid by U.S. soccer. Um, mm-hmm. Around that time, USA Hockey, the women's team, did a similar thing, and USA Hockey put a little bit of pressure on them and kicked them out of the Olympic Training Center. And... With that, the players kind of panicked, and, and no progress has been made in 17 years. Yeah. Uh, you look at U.S. soccer, they've been under contract, and you see that the strides that they've made in the last 17 years, and just look at the two, how vastly different they are, even though they started in very similar spots 17 years ago. That was has definitely been talking points in some of our calls uh, as a team, um, being very relatable to, to the soccer team. But with the the climate of where the country is at right now, we a year ago we didn't know that um, this was all going to happen and it was going to all, all kind of come to a head. Um, yeah. With the climate of our country and, and where it's at, it's it's kind of just perfect timing for us as, as far as that's concerned. But it was definitely not planned. Yeah. When you when you say that, are you talking about um, like the political situation and also the response with things like the women's march and the women's strike? Yeah, I think I think it's all of it. There was the women's march, the women's strike. There was the day without women. There was International Women's Day last week. Um, U.S. Soccer with equal play, equal pay. Um, just all of that has been going on in the last couple of months, and so you you see that we're now playing a role in that as the women's hockey team. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and I mean, I am a woman and a hockey fan. Um, I never played. I was not very good at skating. But hockey is is such a physical sport. There's a lot of this assumption that women can't play it. I I should tell you, I once got in a very long argument with a friend at, at the bar talking about very small male hockey players and saying that why is it that you think Marty St. Louis is a capable player and a woman who is the same size is not also able to do what he can do. Um, so anyway, um, 
But I wanted to to hear from you about, in particular, why we should value women playing this particular sport, um, why it matters, why we should invest in it as much as we invest in women's soccer and other sports that we may be more traditionally associate with women playing them. Uh, I think a lot of people take the stance that <clears throat> women's hockey is not marketable and it can't make them money, but if you don't invest marketing and time and PR into it, you're not going to get a return on it. You have to do the legwork to grow the sport. And you saw that with U.S. soccer. You've seen what they've done to grow the program and to grow the game. And we believe that we put a similar product on the ice. And if you, we believe that if you build it, they will come. That's our stance on it. Um, the University of Wisconsin does fill the bowl every year, and that's a Division One college program. And they sell out a 15,000 seat arena. So you're telling me that one of the top Division One college programs in the country can sell out a rink, but the women's national team can't. I don't. I like. I don't buy that. Anything else that you want people to know about what's going on? A lot of people have the assumption that this is just the women's national team and the 23 players that are on the roster today. Um, this is more than just us 23 players. This is for all the players that have come before us and all the players that are going to come after us. And we're not doing this to make millions of dollars. We just want to make a livable wage and to be able to be full-time athletes as USA Hockey expects us to be and to be to be treated as elite athletes. We're not asking for the moon and the stars. We're just asking to be treated equitable. That was Monique Lamoureux-Mirando of the U.S. Women's National Hockey Team. They are still in bargaining at the time this show was recorded, and though no deal had been reached, there were reports that progress was being made in negotiations. We will keep you posted, and you can read the transcript of my interview at the Descent Magazine website, descentmagazine.org. The workers of the Ashulia Garment Factory are on strike. Never heard of them? Well, they've probably made some of those clothes you bought. Following the Rana Plaza tragedy in Bangladesh in 2013, a massive factory collapse that killed more than 1,100 workers, international outrage spurred new regulations to address, at least on paper, the profound lack of basic labor protections for the massive garment industry workforce. Today, these promises are ringing more hollowly than ever in the ongoing struggle for labor justice. And more than ever, women workers are raising their voices. In December, hundreds of workers and labor activists clashed with owners of the Ashulia manufacturing facility outside Dhaka following a massive strike. And activists say the same government that vowed to improve working conditions in 2013 are today ignoring the struggles of an estimated 1,600 people who were fired. Hundreds of people have also been accused of various subversive acts, and about 34 labor activists have been detained over the past several weeks. Their main demand? Raising the minimum wage from the current $67 per month to the profligate $190 a month. In addition to facing constant union busting and wage theft, the women workers who dominate the garment industry currently are highly vulnerable to physical and sexual abuse. They're also politically disenfranchised as rural to urban migrants. International pressure over the years due to various factory disasters has driven some nationwide reforms for factory safety to prevent so-called death trap incidents involving massive fires or collapses like Rana Plaza. 
This recently culminated in a legally binding international factory safety accord. So that has led to some improvements on the safety side, and minimum wages have been hiked incrementally. But labor activists fear that as public pressure dissipates, the biggest obstacle to achieving equity for the workers, the suppression of their right to organize, is unrelenting. In past years, labor leaders have been arbitrarily detained, tortured, even killed for their activism. I spoke with Nomi Nath, president of the Bangladesh Independent Garment Workers Union Federation, on a recent visit to the U.S. She talked about the plight facing the garment worker movement and why the industry's claims that factory workers simply don't earn enough money to afford higher wages for their workers is patently untrue from a worker's standpoint. After the Rana Plaza and Tajreen fashion incidents, tragic incidents, so we got some approval of the unions, but thereafter, in the last two years, the labor acts and regulations are so much tightened, so it's not possible to get uh, registration so easily. And for a union, we have to submit a lot of papers, a lot of proof, so it is not easy to gather uh, in time and submit that. Besides that, I would like to say we are getting obstacles uh, all the time from the government, from the owners, from the BGME, and also administration is not uh, helping us or assisting us, rather uh, obstructing our initiative. Uh, recently uh, in Ashulia, a uh, lot of pressure coming to the uh, leaders, uh, those who are moving uh, with the union activities. And uh, due to that, uh, now it is very, very impossible to go ahead with any union registration or uh, move uh, to form a union over there. Since Rana Plaza, there were supposed to be a lot of inf- uh, reforms taking place, especially on factory safety, and um, allowing workplace organization was supposed to be a part of that. Um, why hasn't that worked, or um, has there been any progress since then? In uh, building safety measure and uh, fire safety measures, uh, that is uh, in place right now after the Rana Plaza incident and Accord and Alliance. They are looking after that. We welcome their initiative and they are working still with that. Uh, I, uh, my concern always uh, first for my workers. Uh, safety. Uh, basically, it's intertwined, uh, uh, interlinked, uh, because it's all the matter of labor, the workers. So my minimum wage and my safety, uh, both are required. So it uh, certainly uh, impacts on safety issues. Uh, after the Ashulia, uh, we are not getting our uh, minimum wage high, and they are not willing to give that and my safety issues also related with that. So if there is no union, if we don't, cannot raise our voice, the owner will give uh, some lackings on the safety measures so we cannot 
raise our voice or make our demands. And in this way, uh, we will be again far behind in safety measures too. That was Nomita Nath of the Bangladesh Independent Garment Workers Union Federation. We have also discussed many times on this show the struggles of contingent and adjunct university faculty to organize. Next week may see one of the first strikes among such faculty from contingent workers at Ithaca College. I spoke with Rachel Kaufman, who is a lecturer at multiple schools, because that tends to be what happens when you are paid just a few thousand dollars per class per semester. And in particular, she is a lecturer at Ithaca in writing women's and gender studies. She is a member of the Contingent Faculty Union Bargaining Committee. Tell us what is going on with the Contingent Faculty Union Bargaining. We formed our union uh, first two years ago in the summer, I think I guess it was in May of 2015. And that was a, a union for part-time faculty on campus. And we right. had also been talking with full-time contingent faculty at the time, and a lot of them were excited to join us. So they joined us a year later. And we've been bargaining for our first contract since then. We've been bargaining for about, I want to say, uh, 17 months at this point. So it's been a really long process that has, uh, you know, really been dragged on. Um, I would I would say mostly by the administration's uh, stubbornness over um, things large and small. I've been surprised at the stubbornness that they have shown over some very small things. It's been a difficult process with this administration, which has been really, really resistant to the kind of change that is needed not just at Ithaca College, but at colleges across the country. That, and it's, I think it's really plain to see for a lot of folks that these changes are needed. Changes just like, you know, fair pay, basic job security for faculty uh, who yeah. are at the college year after year. And um, this administration has been very, very resistant to, to any change, really. So um, we've seen the process kind of drag on a bit, and uh, that's brought us to this point of, of calling for a strike, March 28th and 29th. Would this be the first contingent faculty strike? As far as I know, it would be the first SEIU adjunct strike. So um, you might know and your listeners might know that SEIU has been organizing adjuncts across the country for a while now, and they've seen some really huge gains in first contracts that haven't been seen uh, by adjuncts, uh, you know, under other campaigns in previous years. We kind of feel like the adjunct struggle has has reached a sort of tipping point um, where folks are becoming more and more aware of the existence of adjunct faculty and, and mm-hmm. how many the large numbers in which we're we're serving students in this country, and I think also the tipping point is just reached because of just like the rapidity of of how how fast um, administrators across the country are converting all of their faculty into adjuncts essentially. Yeah. So at this point, you know, we are the new majority. We're the new faculty majority. In America, uh, we're, we're about 75% of all uh, higher ed faculty is contingent, uh, whether they're yeah. part-time or full-time contingent. And so, uh, because of that, you know, that's just really an untenable situation. It makes uh, it makes colleges and universities hugely unsustainable uh, enterprises. It really puts them in a precarious position, and um, and it's obviously it's a problem for the people like me who fill those jobs, and it's also a problem for students. Adjunctum comes out in students in so many ways, some of which are direct and some of which are much more uh, subtle and hard to see. Um, a lot of adjuncts are not evaluated. There's no, like, formal evaluation process. Um, so clearly that that's a problem uh, for students. Yeah. Uh, 
uh, I've talked with adjuncts who've been at uh, one school for, for many years or for a decade who've never been evaluated. Um, right. And a lot of adjuncts are wonderful, wonderful teachers. In fact, we often hear from our students that we're their favorite teachers. And I think yeah. that you do find more a bit more of like a devotion to teaching amongst the contingent like class of faculty um, in some cases. Uh, and I think that's because, you know, who would do this <laughs> if they didn't right. really love teaching? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because um, a lot of us are living in poverty. It's, um, we're all being paid poverty wages um, unless we've been right. unionized and and we've and we've fought for our rights. Otherwise, uh, the the national average for adjuncts to make is about twenty seven hundred dollars a class, um, yeah. and that holds steady even in places like large cities like New York City. I've heard that people get paid like twenty five hundred even. Um, which you can only imagine how many classes you'd have to teach in order to just survive. Um, yeah, so, you know, these are the reasons that we organized and, and these are the reasons that we're fighting. Tell us about some of the specific issues at Ithaca. At Ithaca, we have pay that is slightly uh, better than the regional average. There's some schools in our area that pay more um, and most of them pay a little bit less. Uh, so we start out at a place that, um, if you look at the market value of our of our labor, uh, which the administration has done, um, they, there's this idea of like, well, it's fine. And I think what a lot of people don't understand, and certainly what this administration does not understand, is that it's not okay to exploit your faculty just because other schools are doing it. Um, uh, I think one of the things that is really important to realize about adjuncts is that, um, you know, we're called adjuncts at Ithaca College. We're actually called part-time faculty. That's like our our, our title description in the in the handbook. And, you know, we're called contingent and all these other things. So a lot of folks um, translate that in their mind as meaning temporary. But, of course, like so many other people in this emerging uh, horrible gig economy, for example, Uber drivers or, and people in the retail industry, people in fast food, you know, we're being kept in a contingent position, but that doesn't actually mean that this is a temporary job for any of us. Um, most workers who are in contingent positions uh, in the U.S. are actually, you know, at this point trying to make a living and would love to have a full-time stable job with health insurance and um, particularly right. now with our new administration desperately needing health insurance. and um, yeah, right. Yeah, and, and also just needing, you know, a stable um, living wage and, uh, you know, basic job security. So I think it's really important for folks to realize that adjunct does not mean temporary. For, so, for example, at Ithaca College, right. the average tenure of a part-timer is seven years. So uh, that means that half of the part-timers have been there for longer than seven years at a time. So clearly it's not a temporary role. You know, there's a proper role for adjuncts, which is, uh, to fill in for medical and family leaves on a temporary basis or to teach a one-off specialized class that an academic wouldn't be able to teach. And that's not how we're being used. Yeah. It's not how we're being used across the country. It's not how we're being used at IC. Um, at IC, we've seen the administration refuse to recognize that fact, even though it's plainly clear from the evidence. To put this in, in sort of national political context, we have an administration that is doubling down on the corporatization of everything. And so... So, yeah, I wonder what you're thinking about education labor and higher education labor in this political moment. So I think that now is really a time that educators everywhere need to be standing up to, together, collectively organizing and making really, you know, effective campaigns to, um, you know, just say no to this corporate trend. Say we like what we had 
40 years ago. Uh, the whole world looked at what we had 40 years ago and envied it. And it was, and it's a fantastic system, this higher ed system that we have in the United States. We should keep it. We should fund it. Uh, we should fight for it. That was Rachel Kaufman of the Contingent Faculty Bargaining Committee at Ithaca College, which is part of SEIU's Faculty Forward campaign. Friend of the podcast and Dissent editorial board member Tressie McMillan Cottom has an excellent new book out, Lower Ed, which examines the connections between the way we work now and the increasing numbers of people who are enrolling in the for profit college system. Recently, I joined Tressie Stephen Bird, Senior Policy Analyst at New America Foundation, to talk about the book, The For-Profit System, The Increasingly Miserable Labor Market, and Organizing Around All of Those Things. I am from North Carolina, Charlotte, North Carolina mostly. So I knew the local landscape of schools in Charlotte the way one does when you're growing up, right? You drive past these places, you know people who go to them. And so I am uh, fresh out of school, had not graduated yet from undergrad, so I was one of these students, right? Swirled in and out is how we would talk about that now. Um, And I came out in a very different time. There were these things called jobs. Right, I now, right, yeah, yeah, it's a very, it was a very, very different time, and I walked into a job, like, it was not considered sort of like the end of your life that you'd gone to get a job, other than the fact that my parents were very upset with me, Um, but my first was working in a cosmetology school, which in the book I call the beauty school, a place that, again, I had grown up knowing about, especially, I think, in the South, is quite common, these were kind of places you'd go get your hair done for cheap. Right? And so the idea that it was a strange place did not exist for me. I certainly knew it was not like my undergraduate institution, which was North Carolina Central University, um, the good school in Durham, North Carolina. Um, and <laughs> I knew it wasn't like that. People don't live at the cosmetology school. You live at your undergraduate institution. And for me, that was the primary distinction. Right? It wasn't residential. I was recruited to work there, which is actually a pretty interesting experience. They recruited the employees, not unlike how they ended up recruiting students, right? (laughs) Which was this hard sell about how much you would be helping people. And I am very susceptible to this sell. I come from um, uh, the type of family where women are very dominant. I think that's putting it lightly, Um, (laughs) right? And the idea that I would be mostly helping other young women resonated with me. Again, it's a cosmetology school. This is a gendered career. Right? And it's not like you could go anywhere else and get a cosmetology degree. Right? So for all of these reasons, it seemed perfectly natural to me. Uh, I worked there for about a year and then was recruited um, to another for-profit school. This is important. I did not know these things as for-profit. This was not a concept that I was familiar with. In that way, I'm like most people. Those of us who do this now for a living take this for granted, but for me, one of the most shocking things was to reflect on my own experiences and then later to see some of the survey data and realize that the designation for-profit college does not have broad resonance in the public discourse. People have no idea. They think we mean private colleges, right? Which, to be fair, you know, (laughs) if we wanted to get specific about things, um, but, right, it really did not mean to people what we thought it meant, which was warning, warning, and I get recruited to the technical college, as I call it, throughout the book, and this is a vastly different world. Not only were my students quite different, again, almost everybody that I had enrolled at the cosmetology school were women, uh, disproportionately African-American, 
working class to low income to really quite poor. Many of them, I help them with their welfare paperwork, for example, right, to stay eligible for things like daycare subsidies, et cetera. If you were transitioning from those good old days of, you know, moving, the, when we move those millions of people from welfare to work, right, one of, one of the ways that you could stay eligible for welfare was to either have a job or to be training for one. And there was a very narrow set of schools that could do that for you that qualified for your welfare eligibility. And the beauty school was one of them. Uh, the technical college was a vastly different universe. More of the students were men. In fact, I put it at about half of them were men. Certainly dealt with more white men, for example. Of those that I dealt with, um, they were disproportionately um, working at the time that they were coming back to school, whereas most of my students at the cosmetology school were not. Right? So we're dealing with a different race, class, gender sort of composition of the student body there. And we're dealing with a different type of organization. All right. The technical college made it very clear to me on by my second day that we were not there to help people, as I had been sold at the cosmetology school. And she made it very clear, my sales director said, or my admissions director at the time said, we are not a counseling service, we are a sales force. Right? And I thought, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't, I've literally never wanted to sell anybody anything a day in my life. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that sounds horrible. But I really didn't understand the concept of selling education. I couldn't reconcile it with what I understood college was. Again, I am African-American from the South part of the Great Migration story. Education to us is about liberation. I don't have any concept of the idea of a bad education, right? All school is good where I'm from, like millions of other people. There's no such thing as bad school. And so I really didn't have a framework for this, honestly, until I started working with the students. And Jason was the one, um, well, Jason is why I quit. <laughs> so I'd been working with Jason as a young man. At the time, I'd put him about 22 years old, married, always came in with his wife. They were adorable. They really were. Devoutly religious. And so, you know, they always prayed before we spoke, prayed before they left, um, made their decisions prayerfully, they'd tell me. And because of that, it was hard to close Jason, right, because he needed to go home and pray first. And my <laughs> admissions director gets very upset with me that it's taken so long to close Jason, right? And she sits me down one day and she goes, you know, have you done the sale? And there's a sales technique. And I went, no, I ain't, I ain't done none of that. Because, um, again, I told you, I don't like the idea of selling. So she's going to show me how it's done, right? And she does. She closes Jason by sort of pushing him through the process as she made me watch. But then what Jason couldn't get done is he couldn't get his financial aid paperwork done, right? Because he had a balance left over that he was going to need to figure out how to pay after financial aid had been applied. He has no credit, no money, and the only person in his family that he could think of that could co-sign for his student loan was an elderly aunt who was on Social Security. And he was about to call her to do it and I couldn't. I asked him to go home and pray. And <laughs> I knew it would work. <laughs> and, and seriously, and then I cleaned out my desk. I went to the bathroom. I gave Jason a call and asked him to please call the local community college that I had called down their form, and I had to get him a name and a phone number, and I left. It's not until three or four years later that I know the term for profit colleges, that I know that's where I had worked, and then I start to think about what that means um, uh, for people like Jason, but what it also meant for me and what I had learned about what it meant for lots of other people. Sure. You mentioned uh, that you also went to a meeting where they talked about this new credit program that yeah. they were going to offer for people like Jason who didn't have the money, where federal aid wasn't enough. Right. 
Uh, so tell us a little bit about that. Uh, so this is uh, in between, I mean, I remember this very clearly. This is in between when my uh, admissions director had sat me down and, you know, tell me how I needed to close Jason. And she's got a list of questions about what I should have said to him. Uh, and the very next day, we've got a sales meeting with, quote, unquote, corporate, which was a big deal. They were coming down from the corporate office. Uh, we all meet in this sort of rally, you know, those things like you see them do at Walmart for employees and stuff. You know, it was a truly, yes, there was a rally, sort of. No, it wasn't a cheer. We weren't that cool. But there was definitely a sort of rock kind of, I mean, they'd gotten food and they never fed us. And, and you know, and they had put on the good, you know. So it was a bit of a show. And I remember the guy coming in, he was the vice president. And he said, listen, I've been in finance. He was an accountant before he had become the VP of the technical college. He's like, and I've never seen anything like what's happening in the economy right now. You know, and he's explaining how credit is drying up. And it's terrifying to me. Um, while not far from a sociologist and an economist at the time, I was still kind of fairly bright. I mean, like I read the newspaper, and I thought, that doesn't sound good, right? He was describing what we would know in about six months as a great recession, right? Saying he'd never seen anything like it. But he'd come to tell us everything was okay. Because they had come up with this wonderful program where while our students would no longer probably be able to get the cheap credit from a credit card or something like that to pay their, their balance after the student aid had been applied, they had come up with an arrangement with a loan company to offer direct unsubsidized loans to the student, right, at extremely high interest rates, but it, you were fairly guaranteed to qualify. So the problem with these sort of private loans generally is that they have underwriting criteria. You have to be credit worthy. If you are the typical for-profit college student, you come with a lot of history of things that would make it likely that you would be not credit worthy, right? Lack of income, lack of family wealth, et cetera. So it was a big deal to have someone who was willing to extend these students money that didn't have very strict credit underwriting guidelines. And from the school's perspective, even better, wouldn't require a cosigner because cosigners slowed down the process. Right? You had to go convince them to sign. You had to chase them down. Right? You had to make them come in. When they wouldn't come in, they might make you go to them. Right? This, was, this was wonderful. It was going to cut out the cosigner right? and get rid of sort of the fear that many of these students had about passing the credit check. Right? And he was there to tell us, isn't this great? And everybody in the room was like, yeah, it's great. And I thought, that does not sound good. Now, because this is what I do know based on who I was at the time. Again, African-American from the South had my own experiences of not having a whole lot of income or family wealth. We ain't coming from no money. And this is what I knew, that that type of financial arrangement, other things that sounded like that had been bad for people I knew before. It sounded an awful lot like one of those pay here, buy here, car loan type things to me. And I remember saying, oh, I know somebody who that was horrible for. It was my cousin. Um, <laughs> I remember her buying that car and what a drama it had turned into for her life. And what he was describing sounded like that. So again, I have no concept yet of really kind of how these things work in the macro sense, but my experience of poor people's financial arrangements suggested that this did not sound good. <laughs> right? And so it was part of my decision to yeah. leave. And what's interesting, those kind of uh, institutional private loans that schools were giving out actually came back to bite some of those schools because of the amount of bad debt that they were giving out. So, and they couldn't uh, move it around yeah. long enough, fast enough. That's yeah. right. 
So uh, obviously you're, you uh, have the experience as a recruiter. I thought one of the strongest parts of the book you talk about uh, the recruiting process and how fast everything is. And I, so I wanted you just to talk a little bit about that. So I had my experience. So you know, many years later, I'm in a PhD program intending to do anything but study for-profit colleges. I was actually going to study Ronald Reagan. <laughs> True story. <laughs> I was going to write about the Ronald Reagan Legacy Project, which is a whole other thing. Um, <laughs> and I really did not want to write about this thing, but once I decided that I was, I had my experiences of how the admissions process had worked at uh, these schools. First of all, though, some time had passed. We had now gone through and come out of the Great Recession. Um, and frankly, I was now a researcher, right? And so I needed to figure out whether my, my experiences were um, representative of sort of a process. And I had a question. Um, my main question was, what kind of student is this process set up for? Right? This was a way for me to work backwards because I couldn't get access to the institutional level access that we're used to having at traditional colleges. Right? I couldn't go and say I'm a researcher, give me my institutional review, uh, and let me sort of observe how you run your school. Right? It is a private entity. It doesn't have to grant that access. And because they are very, very concerned about regulatory environments, they don't grant it. But I had some clue that they were set up for a certain type of student, despite what they were saying to regulators, despite what they were saying to publics. And one way to think about getting at that without being sort of in the classroom and watching this unfold was to say, okay, who is this organization set up for? Who does the organization work for? Right? That's a way for us to figure out who they have decided is their ideal student. It's like when we go to elite schools and we say, okay, who has the easiest time enrolling in Harvard? And then we work backwards from there and we figure out your chances of getting to Harvard are much higher if you come from wealth, from certain geographic regions, family backgrounds, et cetera. So I just wanted to know that about the for-profit college process. Um, so I enrolled at nine for-profit colleges over about seven or eight months, which was just to go through the enrollment process up to the point of fraud. I just want to be very clear about that. <laughs> Thank you. No, you know what I did? I actually, thinking back to my student, I was like, you know, I think I got to pray about this. What kinds of things did they tell me? about my labor market outcomes, the enrollment process, the financial aid process. How was it set up? How many people did I talk to? How many people was I handed over to, right? How much paperwork was or was not involved? I kept track of how often they called me on the phone. Uh, I kept track of the messages they left for me, et cetera. And this is what we find out. Uh, First of all, the first question, which was, is there something specific about the for-profit college enrollment process that's about them being for-profit? And yes, there is. What I argue is they are all remarkably the same. If it wasn't about them being a for-profit college, they would have different admissions processes, right? One might do it over the phone. One might do it online. One might have had an uh, enrollment meeting and had a group of people. But nope, all of them have almost the exact same process as if it had been written by the exact same people, which is I either call or contact them online. A person then calls you, tries to set up a meeting, always within 72 hours, right? If you tell them that you can't meet sometime within that 72-hour period, they will offer you every accommodation in the world. I can stay until 8 o'clock. You can bring a friend with you. You don't have childcare, bring your children. Right, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I can give you the bus routes, et cetera. Right? Once you arrive, the only form you ever have to fill out, 
to enroll in a for-profit college has about five questions on it. And it's really just a marketing form. It wants to know your name, the phone numbers of some people that they can call if they lose your phone number. <laughs> right? The names of any of your friends who may be wanting to change their life too. Right? And any obstacles that you might have to achieving your dreams. Right? All remarkably the same form. You hand it over to a person and from that point on, you only talk to one person, and they will do everything for you. They will call your high school to get your high school transcripts. Right? They will help you fill out your federal financial aid forms. They will call whomever they need to call to get the signatures on your paperwork. Right? It is like a concierge service. If you are poor, nobody's ever paid this much attention to you in your life. Right? And that feels an awful lot like care. If you're less poor, people have treated you this well before, and isn't that great? You deserve it, right? And it's going to save you time, right? And this is why I argue the process works for lots of groups of people who we typically think have nothing in common. Middle-class white guys at the technical college and poor black women at the beauty college, right? The process works well for both of them, but for different reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things that you mentioned in the book that I thought was interesting was how the recruiters are uh, treated differently if you bring your parents with you. Uh, can you explain that for a minute? So in the traditional college process, we assume parents are coming along. And in fact, we think of that as a really good indicator, right? Think about, almost everybody in this room went to a traditional college, I'm looking at y'all. So think about your college process, right? The parents' weekends. Right? Who they addressed the forms to when they sent them, to the parents of so-and-so, right? Da, da, da. Not only do we assume, but really our entire college system, traditional college system is set up based on sort of a normative family structure. The questions we ask on federal financial aid forms, we assume you have access to your parents and their financial information, for example. Um, and so the process is set up to work for parents in traditional higher education. At the for-profits, what I saw was that when parents were involved, it was actually a potential roadblock to the process, right? So while they might invite you to bring your two toddlers with you, right, if you didn't have childcare, no one invited you to bring your parents, right? And in fact, if they did, you got a slightly more abbreviated tour, right? They walked you through quickly, gave you your folder, and sent you on your way. It was when you're dealing in volume, which the profit motive insists that you must, because if 90% of your profit relies on generating tuition, you've got to generate a lot of tuition quarter over quarter, right? That's a volume business, right? So you want to minimize any roadblocks from getting a prospective student from the point of being a prospect to the point of being a guaranteed tuition revenue stream. And the quickest way to do that is to get them to sign the federal financial aid forms. And anyone with them that might make them ask some additional questions is a roadblock. Yeah. So one of the things that sort of confused me in the book a little bit was uh, you seemed a little reluctant to actually call the schools predatory. Um, and having studied this industry for a long time, I don't have any problem saying that what they were doing is predatory. Um, so uh, why wouldn't you call them that? I think it lets us off the hook. So I had, a, uh, I had several goals when I wrote this. One, I really, 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 really wanted to destroy my arch nemesis, but that's a whole other conversation <laughs> that we could have another time. The second goal, though, that I had, and time will tell on that yeah. one. The second goal I had was I actually wanted to break out of that conversation, 
right. Um, so, Bob, several of you guys will know this. We had gone through a little brief period there where for-profit colleges, are they predators or nimble critters? Yeah, there was just a paper. And every paper I reviewed for two years had that framing. And whether they was going to prove or disprove the thesis, blah, blah, blah. Well, I mean, and I got it. It's the kind of thing that gets your paper through and you need a nifty title. That's fine. But the problem with the framing is it did sort of represent how we were having a conversation about for-profit colleges, which was that somehow if we could get the right combination of regulation for them, we would solve the problem. And both my experience of working in them and then later my research in them suggested it wouldn't. Right? If the reason why people are pursuing high-risk, high-cost credentials is because they feel economically insecure, getting rid of for-profit colleges won't solve that problem. Instead, we're going to have boot camps, micro-degrees, badges, stickers, whatever the hell else they come up with all the time. I'm so, I mean, yeah, okay, but I mean, you know, we just keep coming up with this stuff and I go, well, uh, if it gets access to the federal student aid system, we're just going to go through the same cycle. And in fact, we've seen this, Bob and those at the Century Foundation have this wonderful infographic right now of the boom and bust cycle of for-profit higher education over like the last 150 years. And we've been through this before. I think now is a particularly pernicious time because I think whereas before we had been through periods of sort of, um, uh, economic recession, and while that might be sort of normal to capitalism, I think that what we have now is a protracted period of changing how we work permanently, right? And if you're like me and you think that's what's happening, then this is a particularly pernicious time for us to be off uh, pushing people off into the private sector to gain their economic security. Um, so if I was willing to just call them predatory, I thought it lended itself too easily to very easy solutions. When I really wanted to locate the problem in, we have not done enough through social policy to help people buffer the effects of how we now work in the new economy, which is on demand, changing jobs more frequently, having to sort of uh, weather the, um, the sort of vicissitudes of how quickly the market changes by taking care of ourselves through 401ks, to pay for your own health insurance, right? We're going to empower you. Empowerment also can feel a whole lot like being terrified, right? Um, and I actually thought that was sort of the bigger problem, and I wanted to locate the solution there. That was a fascinating part of the, uh, the book. Uh, as I was saying to uh, Sarah before, it's, that's the area that I'm the least uh, competent on is the larger economic. Thank you. I'm uh, right too. Yeah. So, uh, so, so, Sarah, do you want to? Just uh, weigh in there about that part of the uh, book, and uh, do you think it was an accurate reading of what's going on? I'm a labor reporter, right? Those of you in here who know me, that's what I do. I also have written a bunch about student debt and the way that works. And before I dig into this, one of my favorite things about this book also is that, like, the predatory distinction, I think, also does another thing, which is that it implies that the students who are prey. doing this are prey, right? It implies that they don't make informed decisions. And while like a lot of people don't know what a for-profit college is, um, I had a boyfriend a few years ago who had never gone to college and who was thinking about going to one of these programs. And I remember also trying to like find the words to explain to him why I didn't think this was a good idea that didn't have the language and Tracy hadn't written this book yet. So I, don't, I, don't um, know, I apologize. But, and it was because, again, he couldn't figure out how to get a job. And I mean, hell, I graduated in 2002 with an English degree from a pretty fancy private university. 
and I couldn't get a job because, as Tracy says, there were there were things called jobs once, and they died around 2001, um, <laughs> and a few of them came back somewhere in there. But so we're looking at a world where, as she says, like the entire way we work is changing. Um, this election was kind of a referendum on whether we could bring back these white men's industrial or manufacturing or coal mining or whatever jobs. And the, the bet here, the bet that many people made on Donald Trump was that we could. We can't, for a lot of reasons. So the jobs that aren't those jobs are either, as Tracy said, right, are service jobs that are being done mostly by women, mostly by black women and immigrant women. Some of the immigrant women being black women, but that's another story. And they are these quote-unquote knowledge economy jobs, which I'm betting that a lot of people in this room do. Um, and a lot of those are jobs that, as she said, right, are you move through them faster. I've had, I graduated from, I finished grad school in 2009. I've had three full-time jobs, a paid internship, and I've been a freelancer in between all of those things. And I'm a person with a master's degree from a, you know, a flagship state university. So when we think about like what higher education is for now, right? Um, when I went to college, and I'm betting for a lot of people in this room, as you write about in the book, um, a lot of us went to college just sort of thinking that like, well, you go to college, that's what you do, and then you get out of college and you'll find a job, and that's kind of how it goes. And now people are looking to go to school to come out with a very particular credential to get a very particular job, and that's not just in for-profits. The other thing that I thing that I think is really important about Tressie's work is that it connects what's going on in these for-profits to everyone else, right? Like, when we talk about this, and we talk about the corporatization of Harvard or Yale or these things being a, a hedge fund with a university attached, it is the same process, right? It is, it is turning these things where we used to believe in education as a social good, as something that you should do regardless of whether it was going to get you a job and what kind of job it was going to get you. Now we think of it as a job training process. And the employers want it to be a job training process. That's one of my other favorite things about the book is where she stresses over and over again what the employers want out of workers. And we want, they want them to be cheaper, to be more trained, which those two things should be contradictory, right? Um, and they want them to be more compliant, right? There are fewer unions. They certainly don't want those. Um, and so all of these things, this is what, right, what the workforce is expected to be now. And this is, again, the, the two schools that you worked at. I mean, you must have planned this. I know. <laughs> I know. So, <laughs> I tell students, when you write it in reverse, you can always make it look like it was a plan. Right, but it really is. It really is, because it's these two, these two different parts of the economy. Um, the other thing that I'm, I'm fascinated with out of this book, and I really am sad that you never got to write the official paper about the welfare reform connection. Yeah, same. Because um, it's fantastic, but... Yeah, and so when we think about education as something that is just there to get you a job, when you were literally the, the guy who had been in the, the military, I forget which part, that said, I need a credential that translates my experience to the workforce, like you're literally just buying that piece of paper. You're not thinking about the education as the quality of it. And one of the things, um, Laura will talk about this in much more depth, but... Um, I remember talking to some of the, the Corinthian students who were the debt strikers who were set, talking and complaining about the education they were getting. And this one, the one um, guy who was saying to me, like, 
hey, I, you know, I worked really hard on this, and then my professor just disappeared halfway through the semester, and I said, how am I supposed to take this final when my professor's not been here, and we just got a new person last week, and they're like, oh, we're going to give you an A anyway, and he's like, what the hell? <laughs> I'm working at this here, man. Make it, like, mean something. Um, right? There is still that expectation, even from students who are enrolling in these for-profits, yeah. that's in tension with the, yeah. the questions and of, of yeah. the job market. And that is actually part of the, uh, thank you for bringing that up. That is, uh, yeah, the flip side of the sort of predator construction was, yes, that the students were not making rational choices. That what they, in my argument, I really wanted to push back on that idea least of which was yeah. because most of them are black women. <laughs> and I don't like things that say we're stupid. <laughs> and so I really wanted to push back on that idea and explore what the constraints were on people's sure. decision making instead. Um, and, it w and one of the sort of pushbacks for me um, for that came in the many students through this project who said to me, they did want their education to be, if not hard, meaningful. And in lieu of, uh, of them having sort of either prestige or um, some external validation that their, uh, that their education was meaningful, they came up with their own system of making it meaningful. The problem is when they did that, it was in ways that was um, compounding sort of uh, the predatory aspects of it. For many of the students, for them, what made it meaningful was how much they were paying for it, for example. Yeah. Right? When you d when without sort of symbols of institutional prestige, they relied on their high debt to say this education was valuable. The very thing that we think of as being the warning signal to millions of students, oh, they should have known by $90,000, right? They should have known. Why didn't they get out? For them, I've spent $90,000. That's right. That's how much it means. As one woman told me, they wouldn't have let me spend $90,000 on it if it wasn't worth $90,000. And I went, <coughs> they oh. being, I went, okay. <laughs> You've got a point. So uh, one thing that I've, I've found from writing, I, I've, I've written about the for-profit since about 1995, so it, yeah, and uh, I've gone to, you know, I've talked to students while they're in for-profit colleges, and you usually get one story, but once they actually leave, the number of them who will say, like, oh my god, they totally fooled me, you know, or they tricked me about this, or they said that I was going to, it was going to be easy to get a job, so I just wonder, from no. that perspective as to whether, you yeah, know. Yeah, no, everybody, so um, there's not a whole lot of great survey data. One has been done by the Kresge Foundation of currently enrolled and then alumnus, alumni of uh, for-profit colleges. And so over, overwhelmingly in the literature and sort of these um, small studies, what you saw was that pattern, yeah. which is why I deliberately did not speak to students yep. who had left. Yeah. Right? I actually did not want it to be tainted by their now experience of trying to repay the student loan. Yeah. Um, because that's actually, again, kind of like writing the book in reverse. You can make everything <laughs> make sense. Right. I didn't actually, I wasn't interested in their rationalization of it. it that's person. right. Yeah, that makes I sense. wanted their actual their reflections on their experiences of it and how they made meaning of it during yeah. the time. Yeah. So I actually did not include in this sample students who uh -huh. um, had either withdrawn or graduated. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wrote down this, the, one of my favorite quotes from the book was, if we have a shitty credentialing system in the case of for-profit colleges, then it is likely because we have a shitty labor market. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it, it really is, yeah, these are questions of labor market. And I, I interviewed Tressie for a, a story, and then it wound up, this quote is also in my book, where she says, you know, we're prescribing education as a solution for a labor market problem. And that was Tressie McMillan cottom talking about her new book, Lower Ed. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org.
And now it's time for ARGH! I wish I'd written that. My pick for the week is by Joe Littler and The Guardian. It is called Meritocracy, the Great Delusion that Ingrains Inequality. Meritocracy. It's got a lovely ring to it. It's redolent of musty old books and leather elbow patches and stately university halls. It is also one of the greatest hoaxes in human history, and perhaps that's why it's making a comeback in a public sphere that today revolves around commercial spectacle, news spin, and reality TV. President Trump has talked about replacing immigration laws with a supposedly merit-based admission system that allows the U.S. to hand-select the most desirable workers to import from overseas. In both the U.S. and Britain, school reform debates are centering on fostering talent in elite competition through what is commonly known as meritocracy, measured in standardized test scores that claim to weed out the intellectual plebes among us. So who are we to challenge meritocracy? Littler writes... Trump's brash rhetoric panders overtly to racism and misogyny. Theresa May presents herself as a fair-minded headmistress of the home counties. Both acknowledge inequality but prescribe meritocracy, capitalism, and nationalism as the solution. Both want to create economic havens for the uber-rich while deepening the marketization of public welfare systems and extending the logic of competition in everyday life. So what's wrong with a little competition in everyday life? It brings out the best in us, doesn't it? It's social Darwinism at work. Actually, meritocracy is just a nicer way of saying that people who deserve better will always be rewarded. And of course, that means the people who don't have anything deserve that too. Littler goes on to argue that neoliberal meritocracy is defined by, quote, the sheer scale of its attempt to extend entrepreneurial competition into the nooks and crannies of everyday life and the power it has gathered by drawing from 20th century movements for equality. They've taken the language of activism and turned it back on us, in other words. The myth of meritocracy can be revealed simply by observing how arbitrary the standards for merit have been across culture and history. Back in the days, remember, immigrants at Ellis Island were scrutinized for their supposed merit as indicated by their eye and skin color, or whether or not they were coughing. Today, genius is determined by test performance. Yet we don't question the systems of assessment, and in turn, we outsource our critical thinking skills to algorithms. That means, as a citizenry, we are giving the ruling elite all the power in determining who deserves to be cut out of opportunity and why, whether it's on the basis of a criminal record, or on the basis of a credit check, or on the basis of simply looking poor, or looking too black, or speaking with a funny accent. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that bad things happen to society when you let elites be the exclusive judge of what constitutes eliteness. But the debate over meritocracy is pernicious for another reason in light of our current political moment. The abuse of the term applies to intellectual arrogance as well as anti-intellectualism, demonizing the world of critical thinking by pitting it against its polar opposite and calling anti-intellectualism some kind of freedom. We have a government in control of people who hate elites. They dislike snotty, college-educated city folk telling ordinary Americans what to do. So we cut funding for the National Endowment for the Arts. We poo-poo scientists as know-it-alls. And we bootstrap all these arguments with amazing insights fed to you by the media about what all blue-collar Americans at any point in time are thinking. 
We also, on the other hand, do have political leaders who ruthlessly distort the truth and flagrantly do deceive the blue-collar American public into thinking that their way of thinking is really meritocracy. Fake news is news, and therefore conspiracy theories are more authentic and believable than what's actually happening in your community, or federal statistics, or an actual news report. And this tends to hurt the working poor the most, because the combination of hope and desperation leads them to magical thinking, which makes the facile narratives of Reaganomics and Trump care more truthful than, say, the reality of waking up tomorrow bankrupt. Especially when you've got someone ruling the country whose merit seems to be based on flaunting his utter lack of it. And yet that hasn't stopped him from being wildly successful by some standards. So if merit is a fundamentally meaningless label, why are we so quick to be on the same team as the winner? In our core, we still worship heroes. We still worship might as right. We will still see the best in those we admire, even if all we admire is the ability to fool everyone, including ourselves. By inherently validating the social hierarchy by which merit is judged, the idea of merit is instantly insulated from criticism and challenge and it draws us all into submission to the powers that be. What feels like real meritocracy, which we're told will somehow level the playing field, it's really just a way to manipulate a philosophical tautology to stifle our right to say when something is wrong, when we feel something is wrong. This is especially important for working people to keep in mind because we already have the odds stacked against us and meritocracy has never worked for ordinary people in a real sense. So if you see something in your workplace or something your government is doing that seems unfair to you intuitively, even if it may involve getting what people deserve by mainstream standards, don't be afraid to make your case on the merits. In the months since Trump's election, one of the loudest debates has been whether the left should care about rural people or just focus on the cities and so-called blue states, whether the, quote, white working class needs to be central to any struggle or whether it deserves what it has gotten by voting for Trump. But the real world is a whole lot more complicated than these fam-fisted debates, and there's a great piece at Working Class Perspectives from Patrick Dixon, a research analyst for the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. Titled Playing Chicken, Discovering a Diverse Working Class in Trump Country, the piece reminds us that this country is actually not divided into red and blue states, white and non-white areas, and that the working class is a multi-ethnic group of people from around the world who come together to be exploited by American capitalism. Isn't that the American dream? The piece focuses on the poultry industry in the U.S., which is almost universally considered to be a miserable place to work. Poultry producers, Dixon notes, intentionally avoided unions by putting plants in rural areas with mild climates that also tended to be in union-unfriendly southern states. As of December 2016, he writes, 314 of the 426 commercial poultry slaughtering facilities in the United States were located in towns of less than 20,000 people, and another 21 are located in unincorporated townships. And those townships, along with the rest of the areas that make up the swaths of rural poverty in the country, are full of people of color, immigrants, and refugees. In the 10 U.S. counties with the lowest per capita income as of the 2010 census, whites constitute more than 61% of the population and only three, and whites are the minority in four of these counties, Dixon points out. These days, the poultry industry's workforce is less representative of Trump voters than Trump victims, though of course that too is a false dichotomy. 
Dixon writes, quote, at the same time, the workforce in poultry and meatpacking plants is shifted away from its African-American and Central American core in favor of international refugees. Around one-third of the labor force today is foreign-born, and even the North American Meat Institute has expressed concern at the Trump administration's attempted restrictions upon immigration from Muslim countries. The poultry business reveals some of the human faces behind the travel ban through its increased employment of Iraqis, Somalis, and Syrians. Displaced foreign workers don't disembark in New York City Harbor as they did 100 years ago. They arrive in rural resettlement centers in places like North Georgia and Central Virginia. For many of us then, the rural working class has remained out of sight, out of mind, and our understanding of who lives in, quote, red states, who would be affected, for instance, if the left simply withdrew from them, has faltered. The status quo before Trump's election was already bad for the workers in these countries, workers of all races. To quote Dixon, Many have objected to the travel ban with the assertion that it goes against their notions of what America represents. However, in the absence of a travel ban, would we be content with the status quo whereby immigrants and refugees are not welcomed, but merely accepted and consigned to the most difficult and unpleasant jobs? For generations of immigrants, this has been exactly what America represents. That is all we have time for today. Thank you, as always, for listening, and a special thank you, as always, to our sustaining members who make it possible for us to bring you this podcast. If you would like to become a sustaining member or even make a one-time donation, you can do that at descentmagazine.org slash belabored-membership. If you donate at $5 a month or above, you get a sweet belabored tote bag. We will put links to more information about everything we've discussed today at the Descent website. You can tweet at us at hashtag belabored or email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you are an adjunct faculty member or a hockey player, a rural worker or a refugee, we want to hear from you. Also, if you are in New York next week, you can join us for Belabored Live. Co-hosted by our friends at Fordham Law School, we will be talking about labor and resistance under Trump with excellent guests. Pam Galpern, Verizon Striker and CWA Mobilizer, Baravi Desai, Director of the, ta- uh, the Taxi Workers Alliance, and Rabia Altebani, an organizer of the Yemeni Bodega Strike. That will be Wednesday, March 29th from 6 to 8 p.m. at Fordham Law School in New York City. And don't worry, if you are not here to come see it live, we will air it on the podcast. We will put a link to more information up at the Descent website. Thank you, as always, for listening and keeping us going. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. Gotta